Welcome to The Great Asian Pushback, a series of podcasts brought to you by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats, or COUND. The Great Asian Pushback features stories of defiance and hope from Southeast and East Asia. Individuals, young and old, and organizations on the ground and online are assisting authoritarian regimes. There's our voices crying out for freedom and democracy. These podcasts aim to empower and inspire all of you out there who are shining the light on the darkness in this part of the world. Hello, welcome to the Great Asian Pushback, a series of podcasts brought to you by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats, or CALD. I'm Marites Vitug, a journalist from the Philippines, and I will be your host for this series. The Rohingyas are often described as the last, the lost, and the least. They are practically stateless. Neither Myanmar nor Bangladesh considers them its citizens. They have been pushed to seek refuge elsewhere and in the process have been victims of abuse and violence. They have long been marginalized. Hafsar Tamisuddin is a Rohingya who has been fighting for their rights as human beings and as refugees. While Hafsar was in Malaysia as a refugee from 2011 to 2019, she worked with the refugee community and advocated for their rights as well as gender equality. Hafsar is now 38 years old, based in New Zealand, where she's taking undergraduate studies. At the same time, she continues her work for the refugees. Welcome to the Great Asian Pushback, Hafsar, and thank you for making time for us. Thank you for having me here. Yes, maybe let's start with your journey first, because uh, we know that you've lived for more than a year in Thailand, nearly nine years in Malaysia, and yes. you've been there in Auckland, New Zealand, for the last two and a half years. So tell us about your journey. How did you make it there? Are, are you seeking asylum or... Have you been given uh, asylum there? Yeah, um, I think I've left my, my country of origin, Myanmar, uh, in the very early uh, 2010, like back 12, 13 years ago. And I was trying to seek asylum in Thailand, but it wasn't successful because I didn't know where to go and find organization information and connection because I was at risk of being arrested and detained if I am out there in the community and looking for all this information. And also I didn't have internet connection or online information or access to anything. So I was in Thailand for one year and a half almost. And then I managed to smuggle to uh, Malaysia. And then in Malaysia, I seek uh, for asylum first under UNXIA, uh, United Nations for High Commissioner for Refugees. And then I was granted as the refugee by UNXIA Malaysia. Then I became a refugee and I spent about eight or nine years in Malaysia as a refugee uh, where I did a lot of um, work with the refugee communities and also my advocacy that I I believe we're going to discuss furthermore. Then I applied for resettlement under UNHCR humanitarian ground and at some point I was uh, accepted by New Zealand immigration and I was resettled to New Zealand in the early 2019 and yeah I now I'm studying my Bachelor of Social Work. I'm now in my year three uh, in my advocacy space. I was also recently elected as the chair of Asia Pacific Refugee Rights Network. 
um, which keep me pretty busy and also <laughs> make me feel, um, you know, living my purpose in life. Yeah. How did you choose New Zealand or was it the opportunity that was there? Uh, I think refugees do not have the right to choose which country we want to go. Um, you may all have aware that um, only less than 1% of refugees get resettled. Um, we applied and applied and applied. So at some point when Unexia um, accepted my application and they refer my application to the countries that resettle refugees, which are very limited countries in the world, and Immigration New Zealand accepted my application and I have to go through the immigration process of interview. And then after a couple of years of waiting for the decision of whether my application will be accepted or not, that I was accepted and I was granted residency in New Zealand. Oh, that's very good for you. So let's go back maybe a bit. Uh, when you were in Malaysia, were you part of an organization that advocated for the rights of refugees? Maybe can you tell us about what you did there for so many years? How did you fight for your rights? Um, I wasn't particularly representing one uh, single organization. Um, first and foremost, it was very difficult for me to find employment because as you all are aware that Malaysia did not rectify UN Convention 1951, which means I do not have the right to work or to study. So the first job that I did is kind of very um, labor job and illegal. And then slowly um, people from UNXIA, from Malaysia, um, they knew that I can speak English and I started to get involved in some project by UNXIA Malaysia. And then I started to join an organization called International Catholic Migration for uh, Migration Committee. So they work for the secular gender-based violence prevention and response for the Rohingya communities and other refugee communities from Myanmar. So I work as a refugee women protection cops. So my role is to do training and uh, around awareness raising for SGBB and child marriage, and also responding uh, to the victim of SGBB, including child marriage and work closely to the caseworker from ICMC. But my advocacy journey particularly <clears throat> and specifically started after 2012 uh, massacre against Rohingya people in the country, because there was a very big uh, horrific incident for all of us. And I had my family back in the country then, and I was in Malaysia. So it was very difficult for me knowing what is going on in the country and me, and, uh, me being a refugee in another country, I felt very powerless. And it was very difficult even to communicate with my family at that point of time to know if they are safe or not because people are running and are trying to stay alive and under all the circumstances. So at that point, I have a thought of, is it better to be vulnerable um, and just be, you know, helpless human or it is more valuable to do something that I can do. And then I started to find a way of <clears throat> starting to do things, the little things that I can do. So the first and foremost little things that I can do is at that point, we have many different social media activities and campaign around raising awareness about what is happening in the country. So I started to join those Safe Rohingya and <clears throat> Rohingya Lives Matter, Rohingya Boys, all those uh, social uh, media network. But then again, because I was very concerned for my security and also the security for my family back in my country, I couldn't 
do all this activity with my real name as if today with Hapsa Tamizidin, my Facebook account was with another name and other social media accounts were with another name. But I started to do campaign around social media because I thought first and foremost, the most important thing is uh, knowing when the people know and then they will start to uh, act because if the people don't know, they will never act. So in the case of Rohingya, it has been many decades of ongoing uh, persecution against Rohingya going on in the country, the rest of the world didn't know because we didn't have a mean of letting the world know. We have been very much cut off from the rest of the world. So I used that opportunity of having social media platform to raise awareness, sharing video, because we have people from inside Myanmar who can send us video of immediately what's happening today and this morning, how people are being killed and burning houses. So we put it online and tweeted on Twitter, Facebook, and social media. That is my first step of advocacy. And also on the ground in Malaysia, many Rohingya people in Malaysia were devastated. Like me, many of us have our family members stuck in the country. So people started to get together and then have a discussion around and finding network, how do we connect? So I started to get connected with the journalists from outside country like United States and journalists coming down to Malaysia because at that point, we have many Rohingyas living in Malaysia and they are aware that we there are Rohingyas who are in Malaysia who have also connection with the Rohingya from Myanmar and who have family in Myanmar. So there was a kind of a focal point for the journalists and Rohingyas to meet and share information and see what we can do. And then slowly, I get connected to activists from different countries who are involved in Rohingya case. And also I get involved with NGO, local NGO in Malaysia. And also I get involved with... Uh, partnering with INGO from outside of Malaysia, from different countries. But again, all the activism and advocacy that I did for Rohingya, I always try to do it, keep it low profile again, because I am I was very worried about the risks that can fall on my family back in Myanmar, because there are so many evidence and, and incidents that happened in the past. If sort of the country is getting involved in such kind of activities, the family can be immediately at risk. It means it can even be, you know, uh, to their debt. It's not just being in prison. So I was very careful, but I was involved into that. And that allowed me to have different platforms to speak and to raise awareness and to get um, involved in many activities uh, that include from very basic fundraising, responding, conference, discussion, webinar, and so many things. But uh, again, I always try to stay uh, low profile. And other than that, I was also starting to get involved for the rights of refugees, because when I was the refugees in Malaysia, I started to see um, the different layers of exclusion and the different layers of the discrimination that refugee communities face under so-called, we did not rectify 1951 UN Convention. It is very difficult for many refugees in Malaysia when they do not have the right to work, when they were not legally protected, when they do not have the right to get access to education or medical treatment like other citizens or residents. So it is very difficult. And I started to see that is something that we need to uh, advocate for. So I was also starting to get involved for the rights of uh, refugees, for the work right, uh, education right. Um, of course, when refugees get arrested, not to get deported to their country of origin where they escape from fear of persecution. So that's how my journey looks like. Um, yes, I was wondering, how was your life in Malaysia? Were you discriminated against? How did the Malaysians treat you? 
in your work. So, I mean, you said you had you were doing legal labor work. Yes, at the very beginning, because uh, I didn't know the country and I didn't understand um, the nature of work and everything. And also I didn't have enough connection. But later on, I started to work for those uh, INGO that I mentioned, um, International Catholic Migration. Um, and also I worked for International Rescue Committee. Uh, that organization specifically worked for the resettlement of refugees to the United States. So under... Their circumstances, I would say my situation was way different than the majority of refugees because I work for the NGOs and INGOs. Even if I work not legally, I still get reimbursement for the work that I do. And because I work in, in the space where the people from NGOs are working, it was way safer than many other refugees. But for the case of many other refugees, I have witnessed and seen and heard that many of my other friends and many other refugees from my own communities and from different countries were exploited for their labor. They were, they were asked to do um, long hours of job. And then there are many cases that they did not get paid because the employer knows that even if we don't pay them, there is no legal protection for them. And many times the refugees get the kind of job that many local people don't wanna do. And then they get very less paid, including myself. Even if I work for the end use, of course, because I wasn't legally allowed to work, I didn't get the same amount of salary that I should get who have residency in the country. My wages was way, way lower than what I should get. So that, that is the, unfortunately, that's something many refugees experience. Yes, how was, compared to Malaysia, how was your more than a year in, in Thailand? Did you have a similar experience? You were working as well for an no. NGO? No. No, no, because in Thailand, I did not have um, all this connection information. I did not even own a phone. <laughs> so it was very difficult for me to find all these resources. So I was at the small township at the border of Thai Myanmar, Mesot. So I was most of the time staying inside because I did not have any legal documents and I was always worried about being arrested and detained. So I did not know where the NGOs are, where the organizations are, and I could not walk. Um, I was just depending from the support that I can get from my friends and other connections. So I wasn't walking. I could not walk. So let's go back to Myanmar, where, I mean, you were born there and you've lived there. Maybe tell us about, about how your life was and are, are your family? Do you have family still there in, in Myanmar? So the <clears throat> in regard to the information of my family right now, I want the postcards to go viral. And for the sake of their security, I just want to skip that part where they are right now. Okay, but yes, I understand. I'm, I'm very happy to speak about my experience when I was in Myanmar. So the my experience, before I speak about my experience, is because the, just before I was born in 1982, the amendment of citizenship law in Myanmar has excluded Rohingya from being citizens of the country. So I was born as a stateless. So when I was born as a stateless, it means many other Rohingya, uh, Rohingyas who were born under after 20, uh, 1982 were stateless. It means we are not protected by the law of the country and we are excluded from many rights that citizens of the country should enjoy. And we cannot we cannot complain or seek for justice under the, the name of statelessness. 
So it was very difficult and not just for myself. I have witnessed many other Rohingyas suffering under different type of discrimination and oppression that includes um, accessing education, that includes even trying to tra um, travel from one city to another city, um, from the village where we were born to another village. And if people travel, Rohingyas people travel from one from the township where they are born to another township without travel document within the country, we can get arrested and detained for seven years and eight years, can be um, tortured in the prison, can be securely assaulted. It is happening until now because I saw a Facebook post yesterday, 23 female and seven males were arrested on the way. They are trying to travel from Rakhine state to the mainland of Myanmar so that they can escape from the country. They were arrested and detained simply because they are traveling within the country. So there are many more <clears throat> that I can go on and on. So the daily life that the Rohingya live is very horrifying and very bad, very dehumanizing. The only difference after 2012 and after genocide happened in, in, in August 2017 is just that the world started to see or know a little bit because after that we started to have a mean of um, sharing information and doing online camping, all this thing, because 50 years ago, 60 years ago, we didn't have those platforms. And also the Burmese government always restrict um, international uh, people and foreigners getting access to different parts of Myanmar, specifically for Rakhine State and to the Rohingyas. So you were not able to, to go to school like other Rohingyas? You were not able to uh, go even to your next village right so if you were severely limited you were not were you able at we least could to go to school yeah yeah i could go to school many rohingyas also could go to school but again the the systematic discrimination and exclusion of rohingyas is slightly different from one township to another township but the general uh, discrimination that rohingyas will face even if we are allowed to go to school we experience discrimination on daily basis at the school by our friends and teachers. And also sometimes it can be even um, the girls being at risk about for their safety and sexual assault by other ethnic groups sometimes in different countries, particularly in Mongdo and Butiram Township. So that is also one of the reasons that many parents feel insecure to, to send their daughters to school, which deprive Rohingyas from getting access to education. So for me and other Rohingyas, maybe if even if we have the right to go to school, but when we need to go for the exam for the secondary um, uh, high school, we need to have an ID. We need to prove that uh, we are the citizen of this country or we own some sort of identification to fill up the form to get access to go for that exam. So that is where Rohingya people struggle. If we manage to get that pass to go for the exam for the secondary school, and when people are wanting to go to the universities, because in our country, they decide which university you can go based on the mark and credit that you get from the high school. So the good thing is many Rohingya students get many good grades. But then when we decide which university do you want to go, if we choose the university that exists in other states outside of Rakhine state, many Rohingya refugee, uh, students do not get it simply because we don't have ID, simply because they do not want us to go to those big university and get those access to education. And if Rohingyas get access to go to the university in their kind state, within Rakhine state, again, Rohingya 
face different discrimination every single day in the classroom, in the university, in the city, and also to obtain travel document from the city where we were born to go to the university within the state. And if at all any Rohingyas managed to finish their university or college degree, again, we struggle to obtain a certificate to acknowledge that we have accomplished that degree because we don't have ID again. So many Rohingyas, even if they finish their study at the university, they don't have certificate or they cannot go for the graduation ceremony. And even if the Rohingya managed to get the certificate by any means, employment sector, no organization, no company will hire you because you don't have an ID. That is very strange criteria of our country. I did not see that in many countries around the world that you must have a citizenship or ID to apply a job. It's kind of a must in our country. So we, because we can prove that we are citizen of the country because we don't have ID, we cannot be employed either. You've shared with us the difficulties you've experienced since you were since your growing up years. How did this, all of this affect you and shape you to be the person you are today? You're, you're very much involved in advocacy work. You keep fighting for your rights uh, as refugees. So how did all this shape you as a person? I it, it is again different um, depending on the different individual and also the resilience, uh, the capacity, the mental capacity that the individual have. For me, I feel many potential of my life have been deprived under that system. And I could see that if I did have the same uh, equal right as other citizens of Myanmar, I wouldn't have to be going back to school and doing all this, you know, from the very basic and scratch. And I would have been doing much more amazing jobs than, than what I'm doing today. So what has helped shaped me to be the person that I am today is because, yeah, I, I like to um, give example of that book that, that one of my friends gave me as a gift. Um, it's called Man's Search for Meaning. So it's about a book uh, about the guy who spent his life in the concentration camp and losing every hope that he had in his life. And he needed to find a reason to hold for and to stay alive for. That is kind of a little bit um, similar to me because all I could think about and experience and in my life is all discrimination, oppression and bitterness and hopelessness, desperation. So when all this thing um, pile up in my heart and when I was in Malaysia being refugee, again, experiencing different type of discrimination, even after I escaped from this Burmese junta and military, everything. So I needed to find a reason why I should stay alive. I needed to find a purpose of my life. Then I, I found it in serving others. I found it to be the boys for many others like me, it gave me so much meaning. It gave me reason to stay alive because I had that desire and quest in my heart that I, I want to be heard. And I want the rest of the world to know what we are experiencing going through. And I think it is the obligation, the humanitarian obligation of every human in the world. When we see injustice happening to any other ethnic group of the world, it is our moral responsibility to respond and to act and to take action. And I think that's how I feel uh, I found my passion and that's how I continue to do what I do. And I never stopped since the time that I started since 2011 and until now. And, and the unfortunate part is I've been looking at all the news and the statistics every single year, instead of having less refugees and less crisis in the world, we keep seeing 
increasing number of people fleeing from their country and disaster and crisis and political situation. It's just, to me, unfortunately, it's like never ending journey of fighting for the rights of people. It's a quite an inspiring but difficult story, Hapsar. But anyway, let's go to your uh, government. Under Aung San Suu Kyi, her government did not recognize the Rohingya's existence and, and the pers persecution that every one of you suffered. This was also the same as the junta. But what do you expect from the national unity government today? What is their position on the Rohingya? Of course, I think it is not only me. Uh, many Rohingyas expect and hope. Instead of expect, I've, I like to say hope. We hope to see um, the inclusive government um, who treat every minority from Myanmar equally. That includes Rohingyas too. And we are very grateful to see um, different people from NUG government acknowledging and apologizing. And I have mentioned that in my previous interview too, because we have experienced that constant uh, persecution many decades, it is kind of very traumatic for us. So in order to earn um, the trust from Rohingyas and to make us feel safe and inclusive, it needs to be way beyond of apologizing. It needs to be shown by the action. So a couple of months ago, when they started to form NUG, I keep asking that question. I think it is not only me, many Rohingyas from diaspora keep asking the same question. If you, if you say, uh, this time NUG government want to be inclusive, why don't you have a Rohingya representative in your government? And then now uh, a week or two weeks ago, we see that there was a Rohingya consultant. He's also my colleague on Jomo. Uh, it's a it's a good sign to see, but the hope that we have is it's not only in this stage of forming and discussing and and apologizing. It has to be consistent, practical inclusion of Rohingyas with respect, and which will give Rohingyas equal citizenship right that every citizens of Myanmar enjoy. This is not the privilege. Just to uh, react again, we are not asking for privilege. This is the right our right that has been deprived from us many decades. I don't think we are expecting more than what another citizens of Myanmar from another ethnic group will demand or hope or ask for. We are asking the same right that another citizen or any citizens of Myanmar from any ethnic group have the right to enjoy. That is our, our hope. And also for many Rohingya refugees from Bazaar, Bangladesh and diaspora uh, in different countries, um, uh, not having dignified human life. And I think the hope for all of us is to be able to go home in a place where we will be able to hope to call home and where we will be able to feel welcome and safe and protected by the new government. So this, you, do you think this is the long-term solution then to the problem of the Rohingyas? As, so, as long as government has a policy to give Rohingyas equal rights as other citizens, or would you propose other solutions? Of course, um, the legal solution is first and foremost the most important thing because law enforcement and legislation of a country uh, definitely protect a group of people from the country. But it's also necessary um, to resolve and to earn the understanding uh, between and among 
different ethnic group of Myanmar and Rohingyas genuine connection, genuine understanding, genuine acceptance. It is a long journey. I have mentioned that in my previous uh, interview too, because people have been brainwashed for many years, many, many years. People hate to hear the name of Rohingya simply for no reason. So that brainwash, that misunderstanding, that hatred has to disappear. And, it, and, and it, it's, it's not impossible mission, it is possible. We need to have the genuine intention towards welcoming and accepting, trying to understanding or understanding about Rohingyas and towards Rohingyas. And it has to be also acceptance from the public and from different ethnic group of Myanmar as well, not only by the government. Of course, the role of government is essential and central too. So what do you expect from the international community, particularly first the United Nations and then ASEAN? What can they do? Um, the United Nations and ASEAN, um, we have seen the news last year about repatriation. So they've been talking about repatriation and many of us, we don't feel safe to return because we had that repatriation in the past, wasn't successful. What did not protect Rohingyas. Rohingyas unfortunately have to experience the same thing again. So right now, I think we are looking how um, practically United Nations and ASEAN can involve um, to ensure Rohingya enjoy equal citizenship right in the country. And Rohingya have that confidence and, and convince, Rohingyas are convinced that we now can go back home and we now can go back to the land where we will be protected and where we will be accepted and welcome. So there are the roles of United Nations and ASEAN. And ASEAN, I have said this many times again, I'm sorry to say that again, need to go beyond non-interference policy. It's not only for the case of Rohingya, it's the case of many other communities from the ASEAN countries are experiencing now, unfortunately. So we need to rethink about the role of ASEAN. Is it the policy more matters than the lives of people or the lives of people matter beyond the policy? So I will strongly recommend ASEAN to go beyond non-interference policy and to do everything they could within their power to ensure Rohingyas are protected and their rights are given and granted and so that they feel safe to return home. Because the solution for more than 1 million, million plus Rohingyas is in the country, not outside, not resettlement, not UN. Okay. Now let's go back to the present, where you are now. Uh, how's your life? Tell us about your life there. Are you, I mean, enjoying it? At least you have some uh, break from your uh, past work in, in Malaysia. I don't, I don't honestly have but a break. No break. Because, um, but the, the difference is now I am really grateful for the legal protection that I have. The first residency that I have in my life, now that I can tell the people I belong to this country in paper, and I can tell the people that I am the permanent residence of New Zealand, which also allowed me last uh, in 2019 to travel to different countries to go to Geneva and to attend um, a refugee conference, to attend different conference for the statelessness in The Hague and, and to travel to Australia. So I really uh, appreciate that. And also I'm grateful that I can now go back to school and doing my degree. 
And I am grateful that I can now expand my advocacy activism that I did way wider and become more visible like now <laughs> than in the past, because in the past, I have to always worry about uh, my security and my family security. Now this allow, has allowed me to do my advocacy in a more visible way and wider. And I'm grateful for that. And, and to your question of having a, a break, I don't have a break because <laughs> I am a full-time student. I'm now also taking the role of uh, being the chair of Asia Pacific Refugee Rights Network. I'm also involved for advocacy for the statelessness within my capacity. I also do a little bit of <laughs> advocacy within New Zealand for the refugee resettlement strategies and asylum seekers. And I'm also involved a little bit of advocacy for LGBTQI communities. So I don't have many break and I really, really am trying to do my time management better. So have, I, I have a little <laughs> bit of time to relax in between, by, but I enjoy doing that. And it gives me purpose and, and I, it makes me feel like I'm living a meaningful life. Do you see yourself settling down there? I mean, many years from now? It is, I think, uh, quite a journey uh, because for the Rohingyas, all we have been experiencing is always feeling that we don't belong because the system makes us feel we don't belong. And then when we travel outside of the country, when we fled in the transition country, wherever we are in the refugee camp, we don't feel like we belong. In the refugee hosting country, we are now welcome. And it's almost always traveling, 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 traveling. Now, being in this country, I'm really, I appreciate the acceptance and, and being welcome in this country. But I'm settling to me is because of all the traumatic experience that I have. And I think it's the same for many Rohingya refugees. It's a journey. And I'm now feeling more home than when I first came here. But I think it's going to take a, quite a while to feel really, really, this is my home. And also, again, I want to emphasize the fact that no matter where we are, what status we have, and my first and foremost home is Myanmar. It will always be the same. And we never forget that. That is our home. And this is my second home. So tell me, what gives you hope about the future of the Rangers? You never stop fighting. You don't take a break because you're hopeful about the future. So where is this hope coming from? I think um, in the advocacy and ad book, uh, activism field, the changes often don't come very quick. And sometimes the changes that we see are not that big. But saying so, it doesn't mean the changes don't exist. Through of my journey of activism and advocacy, I have seen the impact that people can make through advocacy the impact that I could contribute being in that space of advocacy and, and activism for many refugees and Rohingyas in the refugee camp, in the host countries, in, in, inside Burma. So the changes today we see about NUG government, the changes today we see about people apologizing, the changes we, did, we see today about refugees getting vaccination in Malaysia, the, cha the changes that we see that refugees from Bangladesh are now receiving some vaccination for COVID, those are the changes that we make through ad activism and advocacy. It's not only me, many people who get involved in this space. So that gives me hope because I see the impact. I see the changes. And also the refugee, um, the one of very strong uh, advocacy that I am involved and I have been involved is about the meaningful participation of people with live experience and refugees in the sector. So 10 years ago, 11 years ago, it was very difficult to be on the table 
as the person with lived experience to speak, to contribute, to be on the decision-making role, it was very difficult. But now looking back after 11, 12 years, it is happening. We are not there yet, but now refugee participation, the people with lived experience participation becoming more and more visible. Um, it is allowing us to participate more meaningfully, to engage more meaningfully. So it is hope for me. And I see the changes. And again, we are not where we are supposed to be. We have a long way to go. But along the way, I have seen the impact that we have made through advocacy and activism. Thank you so much, Hafsar, and all the best to you. I mean, more power, more energy, more blessings to you. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your time with us. Thank you for keeping us company. Keep pushing back against autocracy. Keep fighting for democracy. The Great Asian Pushback is produced by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats with the support of the Friedrich Nauman Foundation for Freedom. This episode was made by Marites Vito, Nito Arlegue, and Paolo Zamora, with creative input from Jaja Hanolo, administrative assistance from Audi Frias and Chelsea Caballero, and editing by Point B Multimedia. Music